Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. I'd like to welcome everybody back to another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I am just so excited today because I got a chance to reconnect with a good friend of mine who I have not seen since, gosh, pre pandemic, I would say at least, uh, and had a chance to visit with Julie Smith. So, Julie is author of Master the Media, and she's going to visit with us today a little about media literacy. Woohoo! <laughs> my, my favorite topic in the whole wide world. <laughs> Right. Thanks so much um, for having me. This is great. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've, I'm so grateful because I got a chance to meet Julie a few years back and, and watch her present and just see how passionate she is about media literacy as a topic. And let's be honest, folks, there's a lot going on in the media right now. And so I'm just so excited to be able to learn from you today, Julie. So for those people that don't know you, can you give a little bit more of kind of your backstory, history and education and, and kind of what led you to your passion for media literacy? Oh, sure. I currently am an instructor at the School of Communications at Webster University in St. Louis. And in my previous life, I was a high school teacher at Notre Dame High School. And they hired me straight out of graduate school because I sold them on the idea of why media literacy was important. And this was 1997, back when the media was television, radio, and newspapers, right? So It's been so interesting to watch the media evolve and change in the last 20 years because now everything is different and it makes it exciting, it makes it compelling and sometimes scary because this is all uncharted territory. You know, our definition of news is changing, our definition of information is changing. Uh, Neil Postman wrote in a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death that that it's not that we were losing our sense of being informed, but the idea of what it means to be informed. And so with the advent of social media, everything has changed this, um, the idea that we consume media for entertainment doesn't really exist anymore. We consume it constantly. So I think the average now is 11 and a half hours a day of electronic media consumption for the average American. So, If you are really into media literacy, you're not anti-media at all, but you're mainly saying, look, if we're spending this much time with something, why aren't we talking about it more? Why aren't we teaching kids to ask questions? Because first we have to acknowledge the power that the media have in order to define the world for us, to define the other people who aren't like us, the media define that, right? They define what's important, what it means to be successful, what it means to be wealthy or intelligent, what it means to be physically attractive. And none of this is bad necessarily, but a media literacy proponent encourages people to ask questions about the message. Who's the center of the message? What's their motive or intent? What information is left out? How is the message created to get us, uh, to get our attention or to make us feel or think a certain way? Who is profiting from this message? Who's the target market? So it's really important that we help students learn to ask these questions because we're not anti-media. We are pro-critical thinking. And when we're spending so much time with something, I think it's just so important for us to really view it with a critical eye rather than just passive consumption. Yeah, that's uh, something I've actually also had conversations with Paul Dervazi about um, (laughs) who teaches in Toronto. He's someone that 
uh, as an English teacher there, they're required for 25% of their curriculum to delve into media literacy for all the reasons that you're talking about, Julie, because it is so important that we're knowledgeable in that realm. And, and just as you were talking there, if I'm being honest, I just started feeling overwhelmed. <laughs> I started I started to feel like I don't know how to navigate all these things very well. And I, I even try to create content well, media at times. And it, it's it's uh, daunting almost. And maybe that's part of how educators feel with it. I know that's how this educator feels <laughs> some at times. Well, and, and I've had, um, you know, in, in the old normal, when we would go and travel and do workshops and conferences <laughs> and things, teachers would say, don't ask me to do one more thing. Don't ask me to do one more thing in the classroom. And boy, I feel that, I feel that. But it's not one more thing because it's not an additional thing. It's uh, media literacy is something that can be inserted into every classroom every day, no matter what the age is. Now the average age now of a cell phone receiver when a student, when a, when a child receives their first cell phone now is 10 years and two months. That's the average, okay? So we're giving, it's kind of the equivalent of giving kids a Ferrari without driver's ed, right? So we have to implement these skills into what we're already teaching because the kids are consuming 10, 11 hours a day. And it's so important that we give them this 21st century survival skill. And the reason it gets to be 10 or 12 hours a day is because many of us are double screeners. So if I'm working online, I'm also streaming music. If I'm watching television, I'm also on Twitter. Students typically are double and sometimes triple screeners. And that's how we get to 10 and a half hours a day. It's crazy. That is crazy. And it, no. my, my daughter, so I'm contributing to that stat. My daughter at nine years old has like my old phone from two phones ago, but I don't know if I'd call it a Ferrari so much as a, maybe like a jalopy. <laughs> it's all cracked and just, it's a mess, but you're right. I mean, she really enjoys even in not necessarily media, but she likes coloring on there while she's watching TV sure. sometimes. And I know in our informal conversations, one of the things that you taught me that I valued as a parent ever since uh, was just this idea of shared screen time and that maybe not all screen mm-hmm. time is the same. Can you speak to that? Because that really spoke to me in a way that I, I raised my kids by. Well, and to say that all screen time is equal, I think is problematic. There's a difference between watching 10 hours a day of hoarders or teen mom and watching 10 hours a day of TED Talks or Linda lessons, right? We can't group screen time just as an all negative thing. We can't. And so I I have problems with parent groups who advocate that, uh, even pediatricians that advocate that, because if we say that all screen time is bad, we are really limiting the availability that kids have to information and interesting entertainment. Mm. So there's a really interesting thing that some parents do. It's called co-viewing, where parents actually sit and watch television with their child or get on Instagram with their child. And that encourages that questioning that we want, right? So it's one thing to sit and watch with your child. It's another completely different experience if you say, what do you like about that character? What would you do in this situation? Why do you think that character's acting that way? Why do you think they're filming it like this? I mean, you can, and you can frame the question based on how old your child is, right? But what you wanna do is change the experience from something that's completely passive to something that is more interactive and engaging. So we're, we're changing the relationship that the kids have with media rather than just consuming, consuming, we're making them 
a part of the experience where they are providing feedback and actual questions and analysis of, of what they're receiving. That's one of the reasons, and this is a very unpopular decision, but that's one of the reasons that I would much rather prefer that my three sons play video games than watch television. Because when they're playing a video game, they are in control of the narrative. They are choosing where they go, sometimes in a world that they have created themselves, right? They are communicating, collaborating, solving puzzles. And in many cases, the video game experience isn't fun. It's kind of work, right? But they fail and they try again, fail and they try again. Whereas a television experience or even a book experience for that matter, the narrative was written by someone else and it's linear. Yeah. You know, there's a beginning and an end. So for that reason, I think that video games hone different sets of skills than just regular television watching. I'm a fan, but I also have three boys. So there you go. <laughs> yes, Julie, you just gave me permission to play video games with my kids. I'm really excited about that. Of course right. you did. Yeah. <laughs> and talk about it while you're doing it. Right. Well, Mainly because I, video games are filled with advertising too. So it's there's there's a great hook there. Why do you think that ad is there? It's a great excuse to ask questions. And the kids are engaged. They love that stuff. Yeah, I, as a former English teacher myself, love doing that co-viewing piece that you're talking about. And we'll watch movies and at, mm -hmm. just as you said, make predictions. Uh, we got, I did not think I was going to reference Frozen 2 in this podcast, but I'm going to, that we were watching that not too long ago. And there was this whole theme in there, right? Of when things are bleak, all you can do is the next right thing. And we had a lot of conversations about why that's a good thing to live by when you don't really have a compass and that people maybe are even feeling that right now when we don't really necessarily have uh, a clear next step or a future that we can plan, <laughs> you know, just continue to do the next right thing. And, and I, I have seen the personal and emotional growth in my kids through the dialogue that we have, because we've also then through that shared narrative established kind of our, I don't know, a little bit of our character in that, right. In terms of our, our mm -hmm. values, maybe is another way to say it. And so uh, that's been really special and something I, I've appreciated. And, and so so that being said, I guess if I'm a teacher, kind of help us out with maybe some of the things that you might impart to those teaching media literacy or to a classroom teacher, maybe it's social studies, right? There's so much going on socially right now. Uh, how do we start to teach students in a way that's non-biased, in a way that um, as best we can, we all bring bias, I think, to situations, but you know what I'm getting at, right? That like, it's a, it's a right. intimidating because thing to try to talk about. It's, in the, in it is. If you're talking about like political news, it absolutely is intimidating to talk about because there's, you're always worried that you're going to step the wrong way. Um, and then there's this idea of the spiral of silence where in many cases, students will not speak up in class if they feel that they are the only ones in the room that feel a certain way. And that's not something that we want, in, certainly in the university environment, we want everyone to feel comfortable speaking out. So uh, I'm very careful in the classroom where we analyze messages. We don't analyze the candidates. We analyze the messages. We analyze the word choice, and then we analyze the coverage. So we analyze the photos that are chosen, the words in the headlines, the captions of the photos, the placement of the story, and by doing that, even analyzing how they describe crowd counts, right? By doing that, you get an idea of how the source feels about that candidate. And then we talk about that. So it's if you focus on the message 
and analyze the message, you're less likely to step on any landmines, <laughs> at least in my experience. But it's um, even from a history viewpoint, it would be such an interesting activity to assign students perhaps a, a movie from a historical time period and then have them do the research to find out what was accurate in that movie and what was inaccurate in that movie. So what you're doing in the process is teaching the student that all media are constructions, all media are messages that are the result of hundreds of decisions. Why were those decisions made? Why did Mel Gibson choose to make some parts of Braveheart real and some parts fake, right? It's all about the story. And what that leads to, I think, and, and really is the doorway to changing your relationship with media is to understand the role that we play in the economic structure of it all. That their purpose, and when I say they, I'm, I'm talking about the whole industry, right. news, movies, publishing, everything. Their purpose is not to educate or inform or entertain, although those things do happen, right? At the end of the day, their goal is to make money for their shareholders. And we have to understand that if we are consuming something for free, if we are on a website that we don't pay for, if we're uh, on an app that was free, we are the product being sold. We're not the customers. And once I think students understand that, it helps them, it helps the rest of the pieces fall into place. And, and it's not that their motives are nefarious necessarily, it's just that ultimately their motive is to make money. Mm -hmm. A website's job is to keep us on the website. So what does Facebook do to keep us on the website? They line up the stories, not in chronological order, but stories that they think that we will like based on algorithms of what we have liked and commented on before. They give us people that we might know. They tell us all the people who have posted stories. We don't want to miss out, right? So the average visit of a Facebook website is 18 minutes. That is exceptionally long. It's a really sticky is what we call it. It's a really sticky website because once you get on, it's hard to get off. Yeah. But do people understand how their time and really what we're talking about is the most valuable commodity we have is our attention, our time and our attention. We are giving that away to people who are making unbelievable amounts of money on it. And we just need to be aware of that. We just need to be aware. That, I actually have a friend who works in that industry in New York, and it is very much his bosses ask him about some of those. I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to call him out you know, or anything, but, but uh, the data that they pull from the media that they share then is sold and influences so many decisions and how money is spent uh, that, um, yeah, and I, he's a good guy. Like, and I don't think he thinks of himself as being nefarious, right? But, but it is no, the no. nature of your work. And in, in many cases, I would imagine it's people passionately um, advocating for things that they truly believe in, but it- uh, Or or things end up involved in without their realizing it. So for example, the algorithms that YouTube uses, Facebook uses, Twitter uses, Instagram uses, Tinder, Snapchat, you name it. If we like and engage on something that has particular keywords, then we are going to have those items that have similar keywords suggested to us. And the more that we follow the suggestions, 
the more we are training the algorithm. And eventually we end up consuming, and I'm speaking mainly political information here, we end up consuming political information that we think everyone else is consuming too, right? Because right. it's media. We don't realize that our Google searches are different than the person next to us, even if we're using the same search terms, right? We yeah. don't realize that our Twitter, yeah, that we might have the exact same friends on Facebook, but your homepage is going to look very different than mine based on what I've liked and clicked on in the past. So because of that, we can end up in little rabbit holes or hamster balls where we are only consuming information that falls into the algorithm of what we have liked maybe once. And because of that, we can't understand people who don't vote the way that we do because aren't they seeing the same information that I am, right? Right. Which I think lead, leads to this polarization because we're not, the, the algorithms keep us from ever seeing something that we won't like. Mm -hmm. like Instagram knows I am a dog person. Instagram <laughs> knows I love dogs. I will never see an ad for cat litter. Is that a good thing? Sure. But if I follow a bunch of a bunch of fringy people on Instagram, then Instagram is going to start feeding me more of that information. So it's like everything else it has its pluses and minuses, right? Mm -hmm. But we we have to be aware of how this works. We have we have to talk about it more because I think that it's very easy for students to fall into like I mentioned, rabbit holes of information that might not be entirely accurate. And, yeah. and one of the reasons I think that this is such an issue, like our trust in the mainstream media is at an all-time low right now. Most of my students have never actually consumed information from the quote-unquote mainstream media or legacy traditional media. And this is all happening while we're consuming news or I'm using air quotes, news from social media sites. And rarely on those sites do we congregate or communicate with people who think, feel, believe, or vote the way that we do. So it's very easy then for us to assume the worst of people who vote differently from us. Mm -hmm. And the news plays a role in this too, because you know what? Their job, right, is to keep us watching, right? People that are middle of the road centrist, they don't make for good TV because they're not fringy enough. When I say good TV, I mean compelling TV that makes you want to keep watching. Right. So who do you cover? Who do you cover then if you run a TV station? You're going to cover the fringe on the right and the fringe on the left. Mm -hmm. And because there's no coverage of people in the center, they're not validated. So it almost seems like the people in the center don't exist. And it pushes people further to the fringes. And if we helped students understand how television ratings work, how expensive a commercial is and what that's based on. And because you could, you could use this information in a business class. You could use it in social studies, English, journalism, health. Um, oh gosh, you could analyze tobacco ads and alcohol ads in a, in a health class. In a science class, you could talk about the ways that scientific studies are reported on and why, you know, uh, typically most of the studies that are food related are paid for by huge food companies. <laughs> you know, why is that? So there's all of these possibilities. Oh, another good thing to do. Sorry, I'm getting really excited. You can, if you're a math teacher, you could even have students analyze or create misleading charts and graphs. Because that is, since we're such a visual society now, you know, we consume information visually much more than, than uh, literally. We're consuming a lot of information through charts and graphs. And it's so easy to manipulate those to make certain facts look a certain way. 
So once a student creates a misleading chart or graph, they never look at a chart or a graph the same way, right? And that's yeah. the thing. We're, we're wanting them to see behind the curtain of how this works, of mm-hmm. how this works and the role we play and the role we play in it all. So I sound anti-media, but I'm not. I'm a junkie. I'm a total junkie. Um, <laughs> I know. Well, but there's a difference between kind of the passive consumption and then being educated in a way that allows you to see it for what it is. And, and I'm grateful that you kind of shared how the ways in which that applies to a myriad of different content areas, because I think seeing that as a responsibility that we all can shoulder in some part, I think is really important. Uh, and I know you've had a chance to do a lot of work with schools and districts and kind of actually travel all over the world talking about, you know, this kind of thing. And so is that generally speaking, is that kind of your message when you go uh, and work with districts? Yes. And the biggest, the biggest pushback usually is like I mentioned before, don't ask me to do one more thing. And so that's why I try to to sell the idea of media literacy education as being cross-curricular and a way to really, really engage students. How great would it be for an economics teacher or um, AP stats teacher to have them do a project on what an ad costs on TikTok versus what an ad costs on Snapchat and what the difference is, right? So they're learning content areas, but they're also through the back door learning media (laughs) literacy skills, right? You kind of sneak it in, right? And it's the same, um, it's the same with journalism. Uh, We do a fun activity where present the students with a historical photo and then have them write captions from different points of view. So a photo of D-Day, for example, that you could use this in a history class or an English class or journalism. Photo of D-Day, are they invaders or are they liberators? Well, theoretically they're both, right? But the words are so significant. And then we start to see those words in newspaper coverage and television coverage. And then it all kind of makes sense. It all kind of makes sense. One of the biggest issues I think that that we face right now is just the whole prevalence of misinformation online, especially since we're getting our news from social media platforms and we don't trust the regular news anymore. So one of the big issues now, at least in my field, we call it the democratization of content production, meaning anybody can produce something that looks like it was created by CNN or the Washington Post and New York Times. And when you see it on a screen, well, it seems it feels believable, right? Because it's on a screen. And research tells us that if we like the message that we see, we are less likely to check it for authenticity. And so that is how information can go viral in our social media circles because we congregate with people who are like us. So if I see something that makes my candidate look fantastic, I'm gonna share it without checking because I like the message, it's confirmation bias. And there's all of this that's happening at once. It's the perfect storm, right? And that's why I think media literacy is more important than ever. We have to, we have to start asking these questions constantly. I'm so like wrapped up in what you're talking about. That I... <laughs> I find myself kind of at a loss. I'm like, just keep going, Julie, because this is amazing. Um, I can go all day. You want me to go, well, I can yeah, go all day. <laughs> Uh, that's what I love. I know you're so passionate about this. And and when it comes to how do we tell these like deep fakes? Do you have any like tips as far as like for these things that, that are presented in a way that looks like from they're from an authentic source? What are the first right. like what's the first step or two steps? Because if it takes, I hate to say it, but I feel like if it takes more than one or two steps, 
I might not get to my third option, right? And oh, so they're probably the trying angry. to cover their those steps up. Yeah. Our our democracy depends on it. It does. And yes, it's work. But do you trust Mark Zuckerberg? Do you trust the government? I don't. I don't want the government to tell me what's real and what's not. I don't want Mark Zuckerberg to tell me what's real and what's not. The best internet filter is in between our ears and we have to use it. We have to use it. So just like when we were talking about television before, instead of just passively consuming, we need to be active consumers of online information. So typically the first clue, the first red flag is if you have a really strong emotional reaction to something. If it brings out extreme anger or joy or curiosity, that's your red flag that you should probably check it. You want to try to check the source. It's very common for manipulators to take photos that are legitimate, but perhaps from years ago and reframe them or repackage them as something that just happened. So you want to make sure that you know how to do Google reverse image search to figure out where that photo actually originated. You want to check the source. Check the source. There's loads of ways that you can do this and check the fact checkers. You know, sometimes the fact checkers disagree and the biggest clue or the biggest piece of advice I would give people is to do something called lateral reading. So if I see information that the queen has tested positive for COVID and I see this on Facebook, well, if it's nowhere else, then I know it's probably not true. Right. So lateral reading means you check other sources for the same story to see if it's actually happening. Right. So lateral, lateral reading is important to be emotional, but we also have to recognize the bias that we bring to the experience because we're humans, right? We have biases. We have to understand that maybe our media diet is not balanced. Maybe we, we're in an area now of pulled news rather than pushed news. Pushed news is years ago when ABC, NBC, and CBS just pushed their news at us and we didn't have options. Now we're in an era where we can pull our news from a thousand different sources. And in most cases, we choose to pull our news from sources that agree with what we already think. So that just keeps us in this echo chamber, right? Where we really don't hear other points of view. So the advice that I would give people when they're consuming information, especially online, is to recognize their emotional response right away. And if they get a strong emotional response, that's a clue. That's a red flag, right? Another red flag is that if the story is not being reported anywhere else and you want to check other sources to see if the story is really happening, make sure that you know how to search the origins of a photo, because in many cases, manipulators will reuse, repackage, or reframe photos that are legitimate, but they're spun and presented in a different way. And recognize the biases that we bring to the experience. Understand that, that if we see a message that we like, we're less likely to check it for authenticity. But we really need to check everything for authenticity, everything. And yes, that's work, but our democracy depends on it because the, an informed voter is, is the key to everything. And if we are getting all of our news from Aunt Jewel on Facebook, we are not informed voters. <laughs> that's me editorializing. <laughs> Oh, Aunt Jewel. Well, I, I this is like almost cliche at this point on the podcast because I, I literally word it this way every time we chat uh, is that 30 minutes goes quick and that we're very close here to the end of our time, Julie. And so I guess and I feel like you just sort of gave us a, a parting message almost by putting a bow on that with those four uh, kind of look fors. 
But is there anything that you'd like to impart, I guess, as a, a closing word to the educators and staff developers and everyone kind of listening in? Yes. Besides the fact that I think media literacy belongs in every classroom, every day, every age, it is not just the job of a professional educator to do this. These are questions and conversations that need to happen at every kitchen table, at every carpool line, and every minivan. Who's the sender of the message? What's their motive or intent? How is the message constructed to make you feel a certain way? What information is left out? Who profits from this message? Who's the target audience? How does this make you feel? We have to get the kids talking about this so that they're not just passive consumers of everything, but that they're engaged in the process and understand the role, not only how we use the media, but how the media use us. Julie, friend, I'm so grateful that you shared on the pod today. This has been so fun to just listen and learn and, and get an insight into all these things that are going on through the unique lens that you bring to that. And it has been so fun to just rant. I, it is, I really appreciate platform <laughs> for me to just rant for 30 minutes. So no, thank you. No, but it's you passionately <laughs> shared the things that I know that you're just wired to, to do and share and advocate for. And I would say too, if people want to continue to learn from you or to, to be a part of the conversations that you're invested in, where can they follow you or learn from you? Uh, my website is heyjuliesmith.com. And I'm pretty active on Twitter, Jewel Neil Smith. And I also have several YouTube channel, YouTube playlists where I debunk a lot of online fakes and share some of my media literacy lectures. So um, that's all accessible through the website, heyjuliesmith.com. And since I do have a son in college and no shame, I also have a book on Amazon <laughs> called um, Master the Media, How Teaching Media Literacy Can Save Our Plugged-In World. And I really believe that, that media literacy skills can save our world. Absolutely. Yeah, and this terrific book. I know I uh, got a copy when we were hanging out one time and got a chance to go through that. And so yeah. uh, thank you so much for, for sharing everything today and helping us to be a little bit wiser uh, in the area of media literacy. And hopefully we'll hear from you again soon. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. 